Hi, it's Holly, and welcome to the second location. We're continuing our discussion of the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop murders. It's weird. Why? And it's by now, weird. at this and point, it's, it's 1997. Weird, right? Six years a after the girls were murdered. And with no new leads coming in, and the police focus on reinvestigating five days. And this leads to the police question. Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Parley Springsteen, and Mike Scott again. Now, just as a reminder, I mentioned these guys' ages before, but I want to emphasize their ages because I just think that this murder was not the crime of a group of teenagers. At the time of the murders, Maurice and Mike were 16, Forrest was the youngest at 15, and and Rob was the oldest at 17. But they were just going to verify Mike Scott's statements of rape, murder, his horrible crimes. And that's not my point. My point is not that I don't think the teenagers committed crimes. I just think to confirm Mike statement. Crime scene they were looking looks to tie like things up. a more experienced so criminal crime scene. around these four. The killers men. left no fingerprints. They left you no witnesses that could identify them. West Virginia. They set a fire to destroy evidence. And most importantly, they knew enough so to handle under the guns in a way the where they wouldn't either the ever get found or trace back to them. And I also, think at least some of the men that killed these that girls had killed before. The guy and I think that that most likely at least some statement of these men killed again. He just came up with that but on his own. The fact that there isn't and another crime working on this in the Texas area Mike is finally with victims giving killed his, by the, the same Miranda weapons as this these girls. This is the first time it speaks to a knowledge of I don't know what to call it other than criminal know-how that has very little impact drunk teenagers just couldn't muster. Which is and unusual because you usually say these killers are impressive. Most people or, can recognize like, the pristine that crime scene they left. I'm just a saying change in the situation. these criminals and these killers. Most people realize that they've done this that before, they are, and I think they continue to do about it. to be and arrested. I don't. I'm not saying they're smart or, they're or I'm the impressed suspect. by them. You know, I'm just be charged. Saying, when you're Most going people to know the look at suspects. And I, I will be looking it seems like it might at be people that have some at experience. At no point before with had Mike been Mirandized. And I'll get I mean, to that when I go back to my theories about he had been questioned profiling by the police for five more, days. I just want to put that out there Mike right now because I'm going to start talking more heavily about the four guys that were teenagers at the time that become suspects and two of them go to trial and are convicted. And I just feel like the focus ever being on them was inappropriate and wasn't just it's a failure, I think, of people to recognize was in just exactly what all the police. scene could tell you, what all the he crimes could no tell you. To me, it's screaming, this is somebody that knows and I just somewhat about what they're doing. That. And these it four guys just did five not hours know what they were doing. So, in, in the 1997, when this now, investigation is focusing on going back to old leads point. and looking into them and re-examining but them, all the like guys are questioned again by the police. That's the second time they're questioned. Now, Maurice, he changes some details about his account. I remember he the young guys had been caught eight days after the murders with a 20 in his waistband at the local mall. And he had said that back then, in 1991, when he was caught with a gun, and he had said that Forrest had said that he had done something bad. Now he says... Mike has he written is a positive that Forrest was and joking. And Maurice claims that he was nervous when he was questioned the first time by Hector Polanco. And he just really does not think that not Forrest had anything to do with the murders. At the crime scene. Now Maurice even and agrees Mike's to be hypnotized. But the Forrest obsession doesn't uncover any additional information. And, and Forrest Texas passes a lie detector test when he says he knows nothing Mike's about the murders. Working on that and statement, the police seem to believe... Forrest, he to wasn't West involved. Virginia. But to question, question still linger about the other three boys in the mind of the investigators. 
Now, even though the right guys now, always cooperated the with the investigation, they agreed to be questioned multiple confession. times. Two of the guys had taken lie detector tests and passed them. And Maurice was even hypnotized. And Maurice even wore a wire once to try to, when he was questioning Forrest. So they're really complying with what the police are asking of them. But after this initial look back in 1997 and the police kind of let it go, by the summer of 1999, a new task force is assembled. And honestly, I'm just going to put it this way. It looks to me like this task force wasn't investigating the murders as much as it was finding and focusing on arresting Maurice Pierce and his three friends for the murders. Now, keep in mind, between 1991, 1997, and 97, and 99, the police haven't uncovered any new evidence tying these guys to the murders. In fact, the police have uncovered nothing that implicates these four teenagers in this crime. All the police have is Maurice being caught with a gun at the mall a week after the murders. And I get it. That is a big deal because the mall is very close to where the yogurt shop is. And Maurice was caught with a 22. And the girls were all shot with a 22. So that is important right there. That should have caused the police to investigate these guys. The police were completely justified in questioning all four of these young men at that point. But what is more important to note later, because this is when the focus on Maurice and these three guys, this is when the focus is no longer justified and it derails the investigation. Because ballistic tests were conducted on that gun back when it was found with Maurice in 1991. And it was determined that it wasn't the murder weapon. So they have absolutely nothing that ties these guys to this crime. And with no evidence of guilt, the police still see a path to prosecution. All they need now are some confessions. And with the information from Kelly Hanna that she innocently supplied about Mike Scott maybe being the person to question first, they have a supposed weak link. The people pleaser, Michael Scott. Now, the police tracked down Mike. He had recently returned to Austin when his wife's employer had transferred her to the area, and he agreed to come in for questioning. Now, Mike goes into the police station on a Thursday at 9.15 in the morning, denying any knowledge of the murders. But in a stunning turnaround, he would ultimately confess to involvement in the killings days later and implicate his three old friends. This confession will lead to both Mike and Rob's conviction for murder, convictions that will be overturned about seven years later. Somehow Mike Scott confessed to a quadruple murder that he did not commit. And all you can think is, why confess to a crime if you're innocent? And I think it's really hard for people to understand how someone would confess to a crime that they didn't commit. And I get that. But you have to take a step back and realize that the type of person who falsely confesses to a crime probably just isn't like yourself. I do think it takes a certain type of person to falsely confess, and it is related to being susceptible to a certain interrogation technique. And one very notorious method of questioning is known as the Reed technique, and this highly controversial method of interrogation was invented in the 1950s. It's copyrighted and still taught today through seminars, and it's frequently criticized by advocates for the wrongfully convicted because of the technique's high rate of inducing false confessions, especially by minors, the mentally impaired, and those that speak English as a second language. And oddly enough, it also causes particularly strong-willed suspects to clam up. So if you're saying, I'd never falsely confess, yeah, you probably wouldn't. The read technique wasn't made for you. It was made for minors, the mentally impaired, and those that speak English as a secondary language to get those people to confess. 
and because the read method is so heavily used and it plays such a large role in eliciting false confessions that I'm going to release a tiny episode just about the read interrogation technique. But for now, I want to get back to the yogurt shop murders and the third time that Mike Scott was questioned by the police. By now, remember, it's 1999 and it's about eight years after the four girls were murdered. Mike goes in for questioning on Thursday, 9.15 in the morning. And while talking to the police, they tell Mike that they already know what happened that night. Now, Mike goes into this interview and he tells the police that he has a terrible memory. And I believe him. I think it's partly all that drinking, all that smoking pot. And he did consider himself the mushroom king of Austin. So I think the use of mushrooms isn't helping his memory either. But I will say, I think Mike gets so concerned about his memory problems that he has and that he is aware of, he becomes highly suggestible, is the way I will put it. And he starts to believe that maybe he was involved. Maybe he does know more than he thinks he does. But the sad thing is, the fact that Mike could recognize that he has memory problems shows that his memory is not that bad. Because if you truly have serious memory problems, you often can't recognize it yourself. It's a cycle. You can't tell that it's going on. But even more so, I do believe Mike has a problem remembering what he did at random times back in high school. I get that. I have a problem with that. And I didn't even do mushrooms, drink, or smoke pot. But I think the bigger thing is, if he had been involved in this murder in any way, I'm sure this would be a memory that would stick out in his mind. This isn't like, I can't remember that much about chemistry in the, from the 11th grade, or I can't remember so much about you know, my friend group or small things. You know what I mean? This is something that would be marked in your mind for the rest of time if you participated in the rape and murder of four girls. But like I said, two things are important to me in understanding why Mike does this. It's first, he's a people pleaser. He thinks it's better for him if he just agrees with stuff and goes along with things. Even though, logically, that makes no sense to you or I because he's confessing to murdering, you know, a crime of killing four girls. This isn't going to help him in any way. And second, he has become suggestible because he is so concerned about his bad memory. Now, after the police tell him they know everything about what happened that night in that yogurt shop, they ask Mike if he knows who shot those girls. And this is early in the questioning. And it's just, they ask him point blank who shot those girls. Later as a trial, the prosecution will claim that the cause of death was withheld information not publicly known and that Mike's simple awareness of the girls being shot showed that he had inside knowledge that only the killer would know. But honest to gosh, the police gave Mike that information when they asked him if he knew who shot the girls. And the fact that the girls were shot wasn't one of the original 13 holdback items. And Mike knew about Maurice being caught with a 22 eight days after the murders at the mall and that this led to the all the boys being questioned at that time. Now, if the girls hadn't been shot, why the hell would Maurice having a gun have led to his whole friend group being questioned about the murders? And the idea that the general public didn't know that the girls had been shot is ridiculous. The police admitted to the public that Amy had been shot twice, just days after the murders. This was published in the local paper. And I will say this, the fact that Amy had been shot twice, that was supposed to be a holdback piece of information. But they let that out to the newspapers. So at trial, when the police claim that because Mike knew that the girls had been shot, that this was evidence that he was present for their murders... I mean, it would be laughable, or it should have been, but because of evidence like this and testimony like this, Mike is convicted and sentenced to life. Now, as he's questioned by the police, 
They tell him that they have been talking to other people and that there are going to be arrests. But the police claim that they don't think Mike committed the murders, but that he knows who did. When you listen to the little quickie we're going to do on the read technique, this is part of the read technique. It's offering somebody that you're interrogating a role of lesser involvement, giving them what they would perceive as an out, but it isn't. You're still a participant in a murder. You're just maybe not the ringleader. And somehow in people's mind that they're thinking that's getting them off the hook somehow. And at this point during the questioning, this is when the police really start heavily implying that the other guys were pinning the murders on Mike. And Mike begins to wonder if he does have information about the murders and he just doesn't realize it. And the police ask him to visualize the yogurt shop and himself as a participant in the crime. They ask him to stand on a chair, which he does, and imagine looking down on the crime scene in the yogurt shop to help him recall how events unfolded and to imagine doing unspeakable things to the girls and right there when they say unspeakable things to the girls right there i think they just let him know that a sexual assault had occurred that night and all along as mike is going through complying with what the officers are asking him to do the standing on the chair visualizing things mike is constantly saying i've never been in the yogurt shop i've never been there i've never been in that building everything that he admits it's always peppered with immediate denials now The investigators, they offer to have Mike take a lie detector test. And Mike, he is all for this because he is really thinking that this will help clear his name. He'll pass his lie detector test and they'll move forward. But we all know that's not the case. A lie detector test screws you either way. If you pass it, they'll say you're a psychopath and that's why you passed it. If you fail it, they'll say you're guilty and that's why you failed it. It's a lose-lose with a polygraph in my opinion. Now, this lie detector is never administered. Instead, they keep pushing forward with the interrogation. And at one point in the questioning, Mike was asked how much money was taken from the shop. And Mike says, sadly, that the girls were killed for 12 or 14 bucks. But in actuality, the shop was robbed of what they think was a little over $540. So right there, Mike doesn't even know how much was taken from the cash register. And I think it shows you something about Mike that he honestly thinks this is a business. I mean, there's two girls there employed that night. No, I get it. People could use debit cards and credit cards, but this is 1991. So I would say there'd be a a tiny bit less of that than there is today. But still, a yogurt shop, the end of the day take, this young man thinks it could be 12 or $14. There's a simplicity in Mike that allows him to be pushed and guided during interrogation. And I think this, I know it's not a big deal. So he thought it was 12 or $14. But I think most people, he's in his 20s now, would realize the business wouldn't even be open if it was taken in 12 or $14 a day, or even if it was just for the evening. Now, throughout the questioning, Mike, he's just constantly saying that he was never in the yogurt shop. But the police Just they insisted that they knew that he was there and that he knew that too. And when asked if the boys had guns that night, Mike starts by saying that he can't remember the guys having any guns that night. But then he relents and he says that Maurice Pierce might have had a gun. Now questioning continues and the gun that Mike wasn't sure that Maurice Pierce even had was described as a thirty-eight revolver. Mike Scott went from we didn't have guns to maybe Maurice Pierce had a gun, to being able to describe the gun. The police tell Mike that they know about those two guns, 
Now, this is even before Mike had acknowledged the idea that there were two guns at the crime scene. See, the police were feeding Mike information by the way they asked the questions. And this is how the police try to say that they don't give suspects information because they don't specifically say it as a statement. Instead, they frame it as questions. People can intune these things and impart these things from the way they're being asked the questions. You know, when the police say, we know about the two guns, tell us about the two guns. Right there, you know there's two guns at the crime scene. So I don't like it. I think it's misleading. Police always are trying to say that they didn't manipulate the um, interrogation in a way that gave the suspect information that they'll later will claim was inside, but you're telling them it flat out in the questions. That really bothers me. It has, you know, a lot of flavors of the Brandon Dassey questioning here. And I just want to, because I'm not a big gun person, I want to remind everybody this, that the two guns were used were a 22 and a 380. And right now we have Mike Scott being interrogated and he has now said that Maurice Pierce had a 38 revolver. And I just noticed when I listen to a lot of podcasts on this, I hear people using 380 and 38 interchangeably and they're not, that's two different, they're just two different um, bullets or two different shells. So um, when Mike's saying that Maurice had a 38, there was no 38 used in the murders. And this whole time, while he's being questioned about the guns, Mike is continuing to just pepper, to spice his responses with, I don't remember ever going into that building. And he never stops saying that he doesn't remember ever being at the yogurt shop. At this point, the police inquire about any other guns. You know, the police know that a 22 was used to shoot all four girls, and they need to get Mike to acknowledge the existence of another gun to make his confession more believable. Now, Mike couldn't remember Rob Springsteen having a gun initially, but eventually he's able to recall Rob having a pistol that he saw with a wooden handle sticking out of his waistband. So Mike went from I don't remember Rob having a gun to Rob had a wood handled pistol, but the police know that it was a 22 automatic that had been used in the murders. And what Mike has been describing the wood handled pistol, that's a revolver. So the investigators ask Mike if he knows what an automatic looks like. Mike agrees then that Rob had an automatic that night. It wasn't a wood handled revolver. Almost immediately, Mike tries to retract this statement by saying that he wasn't even sure if Rob had a gun that night. Finally, after hours of questioning and consistent denying knowledge of the crimes, when he was asked who came up with the idea for the murders, Mike responds, Maurice, and the police have what they wanted. They finally have tied Maurice Pierce to the murders, which was really in this task force, that was their goal. The police moved the questioning towards the treatment of the girls how they were bound and gagged, you know, stripped naked, and the sexual assaults. Mike states that he remembers the girls being tied up, but he couldn't recall what was used to bind the girls. He first suggested electrical cords, but the police tell him that wasn't the case. He noted that the girls were wearing their uniforms when they were bound, but in actuality, they had all been forced to strip before they were restrained, and their own clothing items, their undergarments, would be used to bind them. That's how we know that the girls were definitely stripped before they were bound. And also you can tell by the clothing. And Mike also, he consistently, through all the days of his interrogation, he recalls their legs being bound together. But the girl's legs, none of their legs were bound together. Mike just keeps throwing out inaccurate details as he tries like a kid to say what he thinks, you know, the police want him to say. 
Mike is just led throughout the questioning. At one point, Mike suggested the girls were tied up with paper napkins. I mean, that's not even possible. This young man just does not have a clue. Now, eventually, Mike says a t-shirt was used to tie the girls, and he receives positive reinforcement to this response, because this is the closest he ever gets to, I mean, he's closer and much closer now to saying the girls were tied up with their undergarments than he was when he was saying it was paper napkins. Eventually, Mike is asked, what did the other boys make you do to those girls? Mike starts to suggest some ideas. Were they hit with the butt of a gun? Kicked? Strangled? Garroted? Were the girls bludgeoned? Mike just keeps guessing. He has no idea. Then Mike asks if they made him rape one of them. And Mike immediately stops and says, no, no, he would never do that. And then he asks, did he use his pocket knife on the girls? I mean, he's just throwing shit out there. He has no idea what they're trying to get from him. And that should be pretty evident to the investigators, but it's not. He just has no idea what happened that night in that yogurt shop. By 5.35 in the evening, and just keep in mind his interrogation began at 9.15. I mean, Mike's putting in a full day of interrogation here and beyond. Mike wonders aloud if he should get an attorney. Now, right there, right there, a good cop would leave the room and stop questioning the suspect. But of course, that's not what happens here. The police just ignore his comment about an attorney and they offer Mike another break. They realize now they got to pull back a little bit because Mike's starting. This is the first time he's put up any level of a wall and it's the tiniest little wall possible that they're just going to step right over. And that bothers me a lot because this is this man's attempt to invoke his constitutional right to an attorney. I think he should have been Mirandized much earlier than he actually is. And I think... At this point, when he is saying he's interested or wondering about an attorney, the question just should have stopped. Because here's the thing. A lot of people interpret it, and it is often by the courts, that you have to say, I want an attorney. You have to flat out say that. And I feel bad because it's these people that are easily manipulated, easily led, and they don't want to make the police officers mad by saying they want an attorney. They think the police officers are helping them, so they're hesitant to get a lawyer, and that hurts them. And that bothers me because this is this man's feeble attempt to invoke his constitutional rights. And because he doesn't have the boldness to just say, I want a lawyer, his rights are ignored. And it's like his rights don't exist because he doesn't know how to invoke them properly. And in my opinion, I would love to see the Supreme Court come out with any questions by a suspect or a person being interrogated about whether they should get a lawyer. The questioning ends. But we'll see if it gets there. I mean, it just breaks your heart in a way because this poor young man, he thinks the police are trying to help him and he just doesn't want to offend them by demanding a lawyer and it screws him. Now, after this little break they gave Mike, a police officer asked Mike about his statement about a lawyer. Poor confused Mike asked the police officer what he thinks he should do. Do you see what my point is? He thinks these people are helping him. And instead of doing the proper thing and telling Mike he can't offer him any advice about whether he should get a lawyer, the police officer encourages Mike to try to remember everything he can from that night. And the police officer says he's not, quote, a dirtbag like the others. He just needs to remember everything so he can get on with his life. And right there, I think Mike actually thinks that even though he is confessing to involvement in a quadruple murder, he might just be able to go home and never be charged with a crime. Now, at about 8 p.m. on that Thursday night, the first day that Mike is being questioned, 
The police take him to the yogurt shop to look around. But this little morbid field trip, you know, yields nothing new. And it's after 11 p.m. when Mike finally gets home. He has been questioned by police for about 14 hours. Mike agrees to more questioning the next day, and a detective picks him up a little after 8 in the morning and takes him to the station. During the car ride, Mike says, I keep asking myself, do I want a lawyer? And I keep telling myself, no. But man... I still don't believe I did this. The police officer responds. What's that? You know, just pretending that he didn't just once again hear Mike attempt to invoke his right to an attorney. And once they're back at the station, Mike says, I can't remember shooting anybody. You all are telling me that I did. I was telling you all what you wanted to hear. This statement had been preceded by Mike at first denying that he had ever been in the shop, which he followed with maybe he had shot one of the girls. Then a detective accused Mike of having shot all four girls. And that's the point where Mike just says, dude, I can't remember shooting anybody. But no one really cares at this point because this guy's already been confessing to stuff. And later, while he was being questioned by the police, an investigator holds a gun to the back of Mike's head. Yeah, you heard me. He held a gun to the back of Mike's head and loaded or unloaded, I don't care. That's not how you get a proper confession. And the police are back to their old-timey tactics. Only this time, the interrogation is being videotaped. And the footage will one day wind up on the internet and in the newspapers and on TV, casting a lot of doubt on the truthfulness of Mike Scott's confession and the lengths that the police went to to obtain it. Now, when they pull this gun on Mike, I don't know what they were trying to get. I mean, what exactly they were going for at that moment, but I think it has the opposite effect than what they were looking for because Mike completely shuts down. He's frightened. He's starting, I think, maybe here at this point to understand, no, maybe he's not. Eh, maybe he is. I, I can't figure this dude out. But there's a chance now he's starting to understand the seriousness of his position. And now another investigator enters the room at this point. And by now, Mike is sitting in this interrogation room. He's sitting there crying. And the investigators describe the girl's cries and screams, saying that their screaming stopped. Mike, what made their screaming stop? They just keep asking him this. Why did the girl stop screaming, Mike? And Mike guesses that they were gagged. But he doesn't know what was used as a gag. And it's 3 p.m. when Mike leaves the station. The next day is Saturday. And the police call Mike at his home that day. And this is day three of questioning. And by a rough tally at the beginning of Saturday, he has already been questioned by the police for around 20 hours over the two previous days. And then on Sunday, the police stop by Mike's trailer and record another interview with Mike that day. And the ever ill-prepared detectives run out of battery power during this interrogation. And Mike takes a battery from his wall clock and gives it to the investigators to power their tape recorder. And my God, Mike, you've got to stop trying to be so damn helpful because he's helping himself right into a life sentence. And I just feel, I look at this, but this is what made me feel bad for Mike in another way. I, I don't think he's a great financial success in life. He is happily married. He has a child. He is employed. But I mean, he's a guy that when somebody needs a battery, he doesn't have a battery in a drawer somewhere. He has to take a battery out of a clock on his wall. And that just makes me feel bad for him. And it makes me dislike the police even more because all the money they have behind them, they couldn't bring their own damn batteries to keep their own equipment going. Did they give the battery back? I'm, no, I'm sure they didn't. But um, I'm sure they didn't because they run out of battery power again, I think. But what bothers me here is 
beyond the financial thing over that says, I just hate when poor people are taken advantage of, uh, is the fact that they've ran out of battery power. And I just have a feeling in my mind that this was going to be used as an excuse so they wouldn't be able to keep recording the conversations with Mike and they'd be able to basically say Mike said things that he didn't say. And I'm just guessing and thinking that could be something they would do because later when they run out of battery power and they're, or they are not recording, they make some statements that Mike said some things that Mike denies having said. And I wonder when they run out of battery at his house and if that's what they were planning on doing. But if they were, Mike stopped them when he grabbed that damn battery out of a wall clock. And I guess he saved the day for himself, at least at that point. And I just think it also just goes to show the level of confusion on Mike's part. That, you know, he's trying to help them. He thinks they're helping him. I feel like Mike thinks it'd be, he'd be better if he just works with them than if he stops. But it's completely wrong. You know, he would have been further off to this 1999, this third time I think he's being questioned here, just to have sat it out or lawyered up. Now his wife, she has talked to Mike about what's going on between him and the police. And she gets into a confrontation with the police on that Sunday. And she is arguing with the police because she's telling the investigators that they are turning her husband into a liar. You know, she believes Mike had nothing to do with this and that the police are twisting him into thinking that he did. And she's right. But after interviewing Mike, the police drive him around town looking for a rusty bridge. Now, Mike had said that after the murders, the boys drove around and that they had stopped at a bridge that was rusty and that Mike had vomited over the side of the bridge and then threw a set of keys from the yogurt shop over the side of the bridge, you know, along with his vomit. Now, the police spend a lot of time looking for this bridge and they never find it, nor do they find the keys. But here's the thing. They weren't ever going to find those keys that Mike claimed to have thrown over a bridge because there were no keys missing from the yogurt shop. And the police knew that. So when Mike says, we had a pair of keys from the crime scene, I threw them over this bridge, and they spend all of this time driving around looking for that bridge. This is planting in Mike's mind the idea that, oh, they had keys missing from the scene. That's fitting. So maybe I do know something that they didn't tell me that I know, which means I did have something to do with this. I mean, his mind is just, it's just Plato in there right now, I think. But I think the idea is when he's wrong and they still let him think he's right, I think that gives him a little confidence in the things that he's saying that's just misplaced. I mean, they spent time looking for keys that they knew they were never going to find. That says something. Also, the police take Mike back to the crime scene on Sunday, but really he says nothing while they were there. And it's during this encounter on Sunday that the police claim that they asked Mike if he still had the 22 that was used in the crime. And the police claim that Mike responded, it's no longer in my possession. The police take this as a direct omission of guilt by Mike. But despite the hours, hours of recorded interviews, over 20 of recorded interviews with Mike, they didn't manage to get this, what they call is a confession on tape. We just have to take the word of the investigators that Mike actually said this. And oh, hell no, I'm not going to take their word on this. 20 hours of recorded interrogations and they only managed to get Mike to make this statement when they weren't recording. I don't buy it. It's ridiculous. Mike never ever claimed in any part of the recorded questioning that he was ever in possession of the 22. And it's even the police's theory that it was Maurice that had the gun. So if it's Maurice's gun, why would Mike no longer be in possession of the gun? It was never his to begin with. 
and just the language of that statement, no longer in my possession, does not sound like the language that Mike Scott would use. I believe Mike Scott would say something like, I don't have it anymore. I don't have it. That's what Mike Scott would say. Mike Scott would not say, it's no longer in my possession. That is language that a law enforcement officer would use, in my opinion. And I think when they said Mike said that, they were writing the script in the language they themselves would use, not the language that Mike Scott would use, which is an error. Because to me, red flag right there. That does not sound like Mike Scott. I'm suspicious. I'm not 100% sure they made it up. I'm not sure they misunderstood, misheard something. All I'm saying is that does not sound like Mike. And in all the recorded interrogation, they don't have him saying anything like that anywhere else. And that's important. So this whole time, Mike is thinking that the other guys have already implicated him. And he's got to find a way to make this all make sense. And when the officers finally give him the chance to place himself at the crime scene, but with a reduced level of involvement in the crime, Mike bites. And Mike begins to further implicate himself in the murders. Now, Mike did get some things right when he's guessing about the crime scene. And that some of the things that were considered correct by the police and evidence of guilt, they might actually not even have been correct now that we look at the scene years later. Mike said that he and his friends had gone into the shop earlier in the night and that some one of them went out to the back of the store and propped open the door with either a crumpled empty pack of cigarettes or a rock. Mike couldn't remember which. And the back door was slightly ajar when police first arrived at the scene. And the owner of the party supply store next door saw that the door was slightly open when he first went outside and saw smoke and fire. Mike thought that maybe Rob had a 38, but remember, it was a 380 that was used in the crimes. So there are some things that could be correct. The back door was left open, partially, when the killers left. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's how the killers got in by a prop door. That just means that's how we know they exited because that key's still in the locked front door. We know they got out through the back door. But when they say he got it correct that they gained entry through the back door by propping it open, there's nothing that substantiates that. So that's one of those things where they say he knew inside information, but not really because we can't tell that for sure. Okay, okay here, I'm going to give you the the Easter egg at the end, is the, the working theory now on who killed these girls and how they got access to the yogurt shop was those two last customers that the two last known customers, I think it was Margaret and Tim, they saw two people sitting at a table. It's now currently believed that those two people were the murderers and that after Tim and Margaret left, you know, they approached the counter and pulled a gun on probably Eliza. So the idea in 1999, the police are looking at this like people got in through the back door and no one's looking at it the way that we currently are, which is that the killers were in the store at closing time already and they were in the front and they were visible. And that's just a theory. But you'll hear a lot about this back door being important and being propped open. And it looks like now that's largely discarded. But when Mike says they propped open the back door to get in, the police really bite into that because that's what the police were thinking that happened. But like I said, this is shows... This is like supposed to be inside knowledge, but it's not really inside knowledge because we can't be sure how the killers got into the store. We just know how they left. And also, like, here's another thing Mike got wrong. He says Rob had a 38, but it was a 380 that was used in the crime. He's getting it wrong about what they were tied up with. You know, he keeps saying that the girls' legs were bound together and they weren't. There's a lot of things that Mike is not getting correct on this. And then on the next day, Mike has his final interview with the police. This is on Monday. 
This would be his fifth day of talking to the police. During this interrogation, Mike keeps saying that the girls' feet were bound together. But the girls' legs, they were not tied together. And there was a sexual assault on some of the girls. And that doesn't seem to square with the idea that the girls' feet were tied together. And it's just another time that Mike comes up with facts that just don't match what we know about the crime scene. And on Tuesday, an investigator who was not heavily involved in the previous questioning of Mike picks Mike up and gets Mike to sign a written statement. And Mike begins to further implicate himself in the murders. Now, Mike did get some things right when he's guessing about the crime scene. And that some of the things that were considered correct by the police and evidence of guilt, they might actually not even have been correct now that we look at the scene years later. Mike said that he they, the, Mike said that he and his friends had gone into the shop earlier in the night and that some one of them went out to the back of the store and propped open the door with either a crumpled empty pack of cigarettes or a rock. Mike couldn't remember which. And the back door was slightly ajar when police first arrived at the scene. And the owner of the party supply store next door saw that the door was slightly open when he first went outside and saw smoke and fire. Mike thought that maybe Rob had a thirty-eight, but remember, it was a three eighty that was used in the crimes. So there's some things that could be correct. The door was left, back door was left open, partially, when the killers left. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's how the killers got in by a prop door. That just means that's how we know they exited, because that key's still in the locked front door. We know they got out through the back door. But when they say he got it correct, that they gained entry through the back door by propping it open. There's nothing that substantiates that. So that's one of those things where they say he knew inside information, but not really, because we can't tell that for sure. Okay, okay here, I'm going to give you the, the Easter egg at the end, is the, the working theory now on who killed these girls and how they got access to the yogurt shop was those two last customers that the two last known customers, I think it was Margaret and Tim, they saw two people sitting at a table. It's now currently believed that those two people were the murderers. And that after Tim and Margaret left, you know, they approached the counter and pulled a gun on probably Eliza. So the idea in 1999, the police are looking at this like people got in through the back door and no one's looking at it the way that we currently are, which is that the killers were in the store at closing time already and they were in the front and they were visible. And that's just a theory. But you'll hear a lot about this back door being important and being propped open. And it looks like now that's largely discarded. But when Mike says they propped open the back door to get in, the police really bite into that because that's what the police were thinking that happened. But like I said, this is shows this is like supposed to be inside knowledge, but it's not really inside knowledge because we can't be sure how the killers got into the store. We just know how they left. And also, like, here's another thing Mike got wrong. He says Rob had a 38 but it was a 380 that was used in the crime. He's getting it wrong about what they were tied up with. You know, he keeps saying that the girls' legs were bound together and they weren't. There's a lot of things that Mike is not getting correct on this. And then on the next day, Mike has his final interview with the police. This is on Monday. This would be his fifth day of talking to the police. During this interrogation, Mike keeps saying that the girls' feet were bound together. But the girls' legs, they were not tied together. And there was a sexual assault on some of the girls. And that doesn't seem to square with the idea that the girls' feet were tied together. And it's just another time that Mike comes up with facts that just don't match what we know about the crime scene. And on Tuesday, an investigator 
who was not heavily involved in the previous questioning of Mike, picks Mike up and gets Mike to sign a written statement. And it's weird, right? Why have a different investigator do the written statement and not someone who was familiar with the previous five days of Mike's interrogation? Well, partly it's because those original investigators, some of them were already on to the next step. And you know what that next step's going to be? But one of those officers flew to West Virginia that Tuesday to find Rob Springsteen and get an interview with him. And despite the police's assertion that they were just going to verify Mike Scott's statements, four Texas detectives flew to West Virginia. And I think this was more than a trip to confirm Mike's statement. They were looking to tie things up so they could tighten the trap around these four young men. You don't need four detectives to fly to West Virginia to confirm a statement. So I think we're understating the importance of this second interrogation that's coming up for Rob. Also, I personally think that there's a chance that the guy that came up with the idea of getting a written statement for Mike, he just came up with that on his own. And when they begin working on this statement, Mike is finally giving the Miranda warning. This is the first time that he is Mirandized. And the warning, very surprisingly, has very little impact on Mike, which is unusual because usually most people can recognize that that is causing a change in the situation. Most people realize then that they are either about to be arrested, can be, or they're the suspect, you know, they're going to be charged. Most people know the importance of being Mirandized, and I just don't, it seems like it might be lost on Mike. At no point before had Mike been Mirandized. I mean, even though he had been questioned by the police for five days, I don't think Mike understood the importance of the Miranda warning and how it signaled how the nature of questioning had changed. Because once he was read his Miranda rights, Mike was in the custody of the police. He was no longer free to leave. And I just don't think he realized that. It took five hours to write up Mike's statement. And the statement is signed. Now, he is not arrested at this point. But, like I said before, when they Mirandized him, that shows he's in custody at that point. The police are acknowledging that. But, even though they don't arrest him now, he's under police surveillance. And he was arrested along with the three other guys weeks later. And this is where I'm going to leave you. Mike has written a statement, and this statement is not entirely consistent with the statements he made during his interrogation, and it's not consistent with all the evidence at the crime scene. And Mike's inconsistent statements, they will be a focal point in his trial. And the Texas police, as Mike's working on that written statement, they're headed to West Virginia to question Rob Springsteen. Because right now, the police are searching for a second confession.